0: mm <laughs> Can you speak about the supine position as a formal posture of meditation, advantages and disadvantages? Well, <clears throat> well you know, for a start, we do lie down. Um, <laughs> so, doing it mindfully is a good idea. and. Uh, yeah so so one can train oneself to recline mindfully rather than just kind of crash <laughs> uh, and so if you do the recline mindfully, chances are you sleep lighter more um, beneficially it's the way of <coughs> and using using it as a a position just to rest the muscles of the body and also reclining your energy energy tends to change when you're from sitting, it's just the body does it It tends to shift it, unless you've got insomnia or something of that nature so just being in a different energy bracket and learning to be awake in that, be mindful in that, be attentive in that so you apart from just giving your body a break from sitting holding the body up, muscles and tissues and so forth then reclining tends to have certain energetic and even psychological um, qualities to it that can be beneficial um, and it, because the energy is somewhat softer, it tends to um, change the mental attitudes one gets less sort of hard, hard and domineering. <coughs> Your experience of body is rather different because you don't have this feeling the weight changes. normally the weight when you're sitting is coming down into the lower body so you and there's this balance between the upper and the lower body which uh, isn't always held that well. so what tends to happen is one of folds around the diaphragm and then this cramps the breathing up and everything uh, becomes difficult. If you recline, then that the weight is carried by weight of the upper body is carried by the the floor. <coughs> you can either recline flat on your back or on one side. If you recline on one side, you can do it in quite precise way to have one foot resting on the other. You sometimes see in these Buddha images, because then if you do lose mindfulness, you, you lose the position. You tend to fall over. So it's actually quite a fine balance. Um, If you recline on your back, then uh, it very much affects, lets the chest open up more and the throat open up because the tendency for the body to hunch over is is negated. So you're in a much softer mental state and softer energy and a more open position for the body to be in so that changes quite a few or affects quite a few of the physical and also psychological formations Mm. you can really you know let go quite a you might be able to let go a bit more fully when reclining a lot of the holding that that we experience somatically is through somatic like bands of somatic tension around the the torso, particularly the chest, the abdomen. It's kind of gripping quality. So if you re- relax that, it's a good chance they they get some possibility release more. Disadvantage is that uh, one can easily fall asleep. Drowsy um, and, and lack that clarity, so that's the disadvantage. Mm, but you know, if you are going to recline, it's probably <coughs> good to you know do that very consciously to even set up a particular mental or mental activity, such as um, sweeping through the body. So your mind is is doing something from the soles of your feet all the way up. Uh, and or uh, sometimes reclining and you kind of erect a virtual tent over your body from the feet like an arc up to your head and generate a quality of metabhavana within that mm. so if you are, even if you're just you know, going, going to sleep then it's a good idea to spend a f- few minutes uh, reclining in a very conscious way a formal way and going through the body a bit at a time with a sense of, oh, just relax the toes, the sole of the foot, and also a feeling of thank you. Thank you for carrying me around for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a nice attitude to have towards your physical form. You end the, the day with a quality of thanking and gratitude and uh, peacefulness and kindness. Then you sleep better and you wake better. So it's... Um, there are various things to be can be cultivated in that way. <coughs> mm. Another question, it feels like our economic and political systems conscript us into harm, complicit in exploitation, from mass incarceration, hunger and refugees to species. Extinction and pollution of air, earth and water. This can feel heartbreaking, confusing, overwhelming and frightening, tender. Can you offer some thoughts, some guidance, how to bear this and respond skillfully? Mm-hmm. Well, <coughs> from an you know, immediate, um, immediate point of view, say so immediate point of view is to acknowledge the feeling of panic and despair and uh, uh sense that acknowledge that that experience feel it in your heart feel it in your body soften widen mm, deal with it in your own how it's affecting your own chitta and nervous system into a state of hyper action which is frustrated and uh Indignant and um, steeped in fear and anxiety, mm. so you know one could say that that's the that's one thing to do, and it may, as, in terms of bearing it. So, you know, I think you're not al- question is not alone in acknowledging these facts or these um, these. Um, mm, I think they are facts, actually. Um, There may be good facts as well to counteract it, such as the amount of volunteers, charities, um, conservation groups, action groups that are happening in the world. Um, You know, there's the good, but certainly the bad has a very powerful and and, uh, afflictive effect on our bodies and minds. So staying in that state is of little benefit. Mm. Now, but then, of course, so, certainly, you know, myself, I am aware of lots of suffering, uh, you know, from individuals to societies, to near and far, and uh, I bear it by being aware of it, being aware of the what it how affects me, and. Breathing in, breathing out and really sending my attention without dropping the topic just into the ground, into the earth, into the um, into the uh, acceptance with something like almost like a prayer. you Because know. I, I feel completely helpless in th- that wave of helplessness effects and then that, that tends to negate one's ability to to function or to uh, respond in a in a most fully effective way. In terms of response, well, this response is um, you know starts with just responding to, to clearing the suffering in one's mind and uh, reforming around certain core principles and the basic principle, meta, goodwill. Sounds kind of Bit thin, but as, you, as we uh, begin to, say, move that up, you might say, from just a fundamental, undifferentiated quality into a differentiated experience of self and other, the first thing that has to come in is a sense of mutuality hmm. to others as to myself. So that affects generosity, sharing, uh, virtue, um, non-abuse, and um, you know th- th- these qualities. So mm, uh, mutuality, mm. and also when we widen the, the practice uh, in terms of one's own heart, and as much as one can encourage in terms of of speech and action with other people, is to widen that sphere of mutuality. So it's not just me and my kids, or me and my partner but it's also me and you know uh, a larger wider group of human beings i bring into my conscience and concern and then from human beings to to animals and on to life forms such as trees and even the the earth itself um so personally you know that's that to me is a is a a response, a personal response, mm. and but then also recognises well, yeah, that's that's a nice way to have your mind, but then maybe is there anything else you can do? Well, probably it means it, spirit mutuality means, you know, you have to find people to cooperate with, you want to cooperate and do something um, that is following through that same that same attitude. Mm. So you can't. We cannot deal with these things alone we have to get together and cooperate and um, collect uh, and that's kind of you know that's again very standard that's what also what's happening by and large in the world today most of the you know most helpful changes seem to occur from grassroots situations where people just start to cooperate get together form enough of a voice or a pressure group or an opinion group to start to activate or affect things at the state or legislative level. Mm. Mm. And to realize that there was just something very, um, when you're just very happy actually about the sharing experience. Uh, The best kind of meal is a shared meal best kind of food is shared food it just just feels a lot better <laughs> yeah. and the whole spirit of mutuality we begin to consider recognize well actually the idea of ownership is really an illusion and a, and a very dangerous illusion based of this greed and greed based upon the fear of losing access to what i enjoy if the sharing then you know you don't have to own things that same sense so one's trying to look at you know bringing around changing people's attitudes that affect cultures and societies into well do we have to own we cannot own it's not just what do you own what does it mean (laughs) how can you you know land on an island and say i own this island (laughs) What does it actually mean? You know, can you take it with you? Can you eat it? Can, can you make it? If you didn't make it, how do you own it? If you can't take it with you when you die, how do you own it? You don't own it, you just grabbed it. And by and large, um, this this um, things has to be changed from ownership to custodianship. Yeah. So yeah, we're responsible for a, a piece of biosphere because Human beings have the intelligence uh, <laughs> to, if they use it correctly, to, to you know, provide more, to act in more responsible ways, to, you know, rather than, ownership is very stupid and, and short-term and painful, pain-producing concept, because it negates sharing. Custodianship means there's wisdom, responsibility, a sense of caring, and you feel quite quite it's quite you know we technically i suppose own a forest but we don't it's held in trust which means that nobody can it's held in trust which means that no individual not even the group can sell it you know unless the the property is destroyed or to exchange it for a for a larger property or similar kind of thing so our relationship to it is We don't own it, but we're responsible to look after it, and that produces a pleasant, you know, sense of care and attention and, you know, looking after the thing. But, uh, so these fundamental attitudes, you know, ownership, sharing, um, and then, you know, relationship, you might say. When you begin to cultivate that, you're in relationship to beings and to the earth itself there seem to be kind of various areas that that um, are defective and we could say the, the you know, cultural is defective the uh, economic is defective and the uh, nature of states is de- you know, is defective mm-hmm. And they all tend to be based upon um, owning This is ours, and the ownership rather than wise custodianship. So, you know, like, like everything material, everything material is owned by the earth. That's where it came from. We can't create wood. You have the raw materials come from the world of raw materials. That's where they belong. That's, that's what they're owned by. That's where they derive from. So we have committed many acts of larceny by grabbing and saying we own things that we didn't actually own you know, as a species. You now, custodianship means, well, okay, we could use some timber, so we'll, take, we'll plant some more. You know, you share, you know, mutual, okay, we need this, and we want to look, pay something back to the earth um, because we've we've appropriated something for our, our use, therefore it's up to us as people with, the only thing we do have, that we do own, is wisdom, morality, and kindness. That's what we own. Why don't we use that? Because <laughs> that's what we have. <laughs> Yeah, it's their only product. <laughs> and it seems we don't use the thing we do own. <laughs> and we grab the thing that we don't own. Uh, so very much just getting that understanding in. So you know, how do we relate to that? So on a cultural level, you see, just, just beginning to affect, educate people in this understanding. Certainly begins with that. If you want to, Look after, you take your kids out into the into the wilderness and to nature because if you don't know it, you can't really love it. If you don't love it, you don't look after it. So getting them away from their screens and into the to get their feet dirty and get wet and roll in the grass and stuff. This is basically, you know, good cultural cultural education. And education it's based upon, um, you know, the foundations. So a lot of education isn't based on foundations. It's based upon secondary things, such as, you know, business degree or something like that. The primary thing is learning to be a human being and also to learn where you are on the planet. You know, that's the primary thing. And people don't really learn that. So that has to be learn at a cultural level, what it is to be, what human beings are they? You know, well, basically, there's these physical forms, but what makes us human is we have wisdom, morality, and kindness. We have the ability to discern, and you do that. You know, we can just, not just learn it intellectually, but actually model it, and act upon it, and make that, that's your basic education. And then what this, The world around us is made of something we cannot replace it's precious and uh, therefore we have this privileged position but someone with privilege should recognize it's their duty is to care not to grab and abuse so this sort of education i think is is really uh, helpful uh, and necessary basic stuff um, rather than the secondary stuff, then you can do secondary stuff, you know, math and history. You can build on top of that if you need to, depending on what's necessary. So, the economic system is, is uh, again, fundamentally flawed because it's built upon certain uh, wrong assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, most it's built on debt. And so the debt is trillions, cannot possibly be paid off. But this debt thing can be used to uh, drive um, change in countries. Say, well, you're in debt, therefore you have to pay these payments, and uh, this means well, you have to sell your land to bankers or international monetary organizations basically they take over and they help to pay off your debt but then you've lost your rights over your land or your air or your health system or something because it's all been sold off and that's kind of what happened happening in in greece at the moment where they you know bankers did a irresponsible the financial system the economic system was irresponsible what happened was the country went hugely broke, so ended up that all, of course, you know, the bankers didn't suffer too much, but the people at the lower level suffered enormously because suddenly all their savings weren't worth anything, and um, austerity measures where they couldn't buy food, and some of them just ended up killing themselves because they couldn't stand it. So these tokens, such as debt, money, figures, currency, what is it? Can have real effects because they can be used as systems of power rather than systems of um, mediating and sharing and so forth. You know. yeah. And so, you know, money itself is problematic. Not that money isn't a useful token; saves you, you know, dragging your cow to the market and selling. You know, every time you want to buy a pot or something, they'll give me some dollars instead. Now then money, which is really just a token, becomes a commodity that you can invest in. You can trade in money, and you can store money, but money isn't anything. <laughs> money is just a debt, it's a, it's a debt. You can't, it doesn't do anything, apart from, you know, being itself, it's worthless. <laughs> it's just a debt. But it becomes an, an absence, you could say, which is what it is, becomes a presence it can be used to exert power uh, and it can be hoarded and you can invest in it so you can buy stuff like you like what happens in in many countries and you know like in Britain in London you have these very large mansions bought by people who don't ever live in them and then what they just wait to let the property prices rise and you just you know bought something for 7 hundred thousand and ten years later it's worth six million. Well you just made a bunch of money out of doing nothing, and most money is actually generated through um that kind of process, not through the sweat of one's brow or through hard labor just through carefully wheeling and dealing in investments and speculation. That's where most of the money big money is made, though so, you know money then has to be carefully handled there you know, is things you can do with that, so one idea was to make money something that um gradually devalued so if you had ten dollars then next month it's only worth nine dollars you know and you could have a kind of a voucher or ticker on it so there's no point in hoarding it you just got to share it then it flows around does what it's supposed to do you don't sit on a pile of five billion of them <laughs> which is what people some people do in a system like that when you've got people with what can you do with five billion? <laughs> what human need? What you, you know, What? What, you, what can you do with it? How much can you eat? <laughs> what, what, what can you do with it? You know, it's ridiculous. It's, it can't be a human need that, that needs five billion. Particularly when other human beings are living on nothing, <laughs> or very little. How come this you know so so this this thing has to be addressed really the whole financial system um, you know the use of money uh, that it shouldn't be hoarded it should be just used to move stuff around and uh, shared and um, you know then in the industrial exploitation also where you you, know, you can you can just buy a piece of land and rip it to pieces and poison everything and that's fine Mm. Mm. so you can't own land you you can look after it and if you need to take something from it fine, but you've got to give it back and you've got to be make sure that the proper irreplaceable um, systems that keep it alive which are irreplaceable are properly cared for that that's that's the bottom line you know it's the, the bio biota the biosystem of the planet is what keeps the air and the water and the whole thing alive we can't do it for all those little critters breathing and dying and eating each other and stuff they are managing the whole planetary ecosystem when they're going not getting paid for it either they just do it and the trees and things like that, so they manage the climate and the rainfall. So you can't, well, yeah, we do, but that's madness. So that's the most precious resource, is it? what keeps us alive. We can eat a gold brick, stay alive. So it's another kind of madness, you know, how you've got something like the financial system based, even loosely speaking, on a, a clatter of gold. Gold? What's that? Yellow, glowy metal, so. And you know what it take to get gold? You have to first of all dredge and da da and throw loads of mercury and cyanide and arsenic into water to get the gold out. You know, so you poison the watershed. And you get the gold, and you fire it up, make it into blocks, and you bury it in the ground again, somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you take it out of the earth, you make it into gold blocks, then you stick it somewhere. You know, in a basement. You know, in some. Why? Why not just leave it in the ground in the first place? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why not say, hey, we have got a great place here. You know, why? Why rip it up to prove it? <laughs> So if you have something like, instead of using gold, which is not very useful stuff, actually, you can't eat it, you can't sleep in it, it doesn't have any morality, it um, won't look after you, won't, you know, there's not much you can do with it, pretty useless. much Not anywhere near as useful as water, as I was saying, but, you know, water's cheap, gold is expensive, but water is getting short now, clean water, because of mining and polluting and stuff, and climate change. So what about if you had instead of gold as a collateral, clean air? You know, or or, or um, have the a clean environment as something that, that your currency was based on. So, you know, dollar is worth as much as the air is clean. You know, if it ain't clean, it ain't worth much. You know, it's an incentive to keep it clean, isn't it? to look after your your actual only resource, really. Fundamental material resource is the planet. And if you wreck it, it isn't worth anything. So, things like this. How do you get to do that? Well, you know, this is where it's a big, very confusing issue. A constitution that includes the earth it's part of um, an essential part of our nationhood. Something that cannot be sold, you know, can be looked after. People can have rights to lease, you know, look after this piece and they, you know, have it checked that they are doing that. You want to harvest it? Okay. You've got to look after it. Mm. And again, if the principle of mutuality and, and morality is encouraged and extended, you know why spend how many goodness knows I couldn't imagine the billions on bombing people and building more and more weapons? Why not use it to build some more hospitals or look after poor people or kids or something? You know, got to be better uses of resources than that. You know, and if you reduce that, then you've got. I would think you've got a lot more resources, and you can use them for helpful things. Imagine you had a something like a, you know, instead of an army, you had a an environment army. Just went around cleaning up rivers, and uh, <laughs> making sure people behave properly in terms of environmental uh, pollution. Yeah, uh, you know, that's that's the army you want. You don't know, be going around bombing other people, getting them angry. <laughs> so they want to bomb you back any way they can. And, you know, where's that going? So, you know. And I feel that somehow also the nature of nations and states, nation is fine, but state is a, state's an abstraction. Nation means you're born there, you feel belonging to it, you feel a the kinship there. And... Um, you know, therefore you're prepared to be loyal to it and to commit to it and to help and mutuality. State is an abstract structure. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, that's difficult, very difficult. Because it, it gets ideology, ideal, ideologized, um, crazy forms of patriotism which are around Ideas and nothing valuable and um, removal from from um, people. Any state, if you've got a state of average, say, 50 million people, well, you know, you've got a government of 200, how many people can they really meet or be with? So, if you have more, you know, tiers of it, like um, local family level, local parish district level we're dealing with on the ground things and perhaps the overarching state system just deals with um making sure you know the currency works or you know the reference body probably looser lighter than the heavy top heavy state system run by people who may start out with good intentions but end up having you get wherever there's that that concentration of power, then, you know, that's where the corruption goes, you know, because where there's power, that becomes a target for, for um, I mean, evil, because, but broadly speaking, you know, evil likes power, the power to dominate and control and exploit. So if you lessen those power structures, Share it out more, then there's just less stuff to corrupt. And uh, so these are all, you know, things that speculative, perhaps, but you know, ask my thoughts on it. Those are sort of things I think about if I think when I think about it, and more. Mm. but the response personal response is you generate the mind of goodwill you manifest and you act in terms of integrity kindness, discernment and you try to reach other people with that and we are each of us every individual human is the only resource we have innately to bring around our welfare rest of it mm, we can request help, we can make use of, but we can't innately own and you can't really own the future either, there's no guarantees in any of this. You do see movements towards change and they tend to be, you know, coming from the grassroots and the obstacles tend to be in the big corporate power structures which continue to deny and refuse the change. And exactly how that's gonna how those two forces are gonna meet, but there are signs that, you know, there's pressure is affecting things. Some people say we are, but it's a bit late now. Um, you know, it's gone too far, but that may be the case, but there's no point holding that view, really. It just freezes you. So you just do good and widen your sphere of attention and concern and, you know, bring that into your life, essentially. I would say also that it's, when you look at our media, you know, you, you, you can just get into overwhelm on just reading one newspaper so I think practically you've got to focus on one piece that you can actually deal with you know you actually get your hands on and feel some satisfaction about doing because if you look at the big picture it's just too big, you can't manage it well from that to do you think a lay person can truly attain enlightenment? <laughs> 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 well... what <laughs> depends what you mean by a lay person, enlightenment. Because uh, yeah. it's only chitters that realise truth, not people, not persons, not monks or nuns or lay people. And it's chitters. So, in accordance with one's uh, Access to chitta and the purity of one's practice, one is bound to uh, experience results. Mm. And every result is a kind of an enlightenment, a waking up, a realization. So you look at enlightenment as, oh yeah, I see that now. Alright, oh, I can put that aside. I realize this. This is there. and a lightness, a local light space, seeing clarity arises into the four noble truths. So every time we see that, that's a little enlightenment. I think the classic layperson monastic divide really is in terms of a recognition that that um, some people, uh, most people, live in in a, a context which a con- very powerfully conditioning context, which is about. As I said before, grasping uh, and craving, and whether they do it or not, they feel themselves immersed in this flood of it, uh, which is operating all around them and giving them signals and messages and presenting ideas and, you know, pushing them in that direction and conditioning their minds in that direction. Therefore it gets more difficult. And the classic, you know, monastic model is when well, you get out of that. So that you're not being pressurised by those same forces. So certainly, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, but again, you know, layperson monastic divide is perhaps not so um, not so black and white. Certainly, many many monastics are involved with worldly stuff and clearly saturated in grasping. <laughs> and there are many lay people or a good number of lay people who are living with integrity and virtue and, and so forth so it's really the citta that counts and the purity of conduct who or what is the lord of death well there's different ways you can answer this First of all, it's a figure in Buddhist cosmology, Yama. And <laughs> mm. So, you know, in a, in a cosmological presentation in Yama, when, when, a, when a person passes away, then there's this you know, the jitta goes through the door of death again, or the door of, or death passes through the jitta, and there's this uh, lord of Death as well, what have you been up to in your lifetime? And you can look back and think, oh my goodness, yeah. Oh, stole, lied, cheated, abused. And therefore, you know, there's the door down to the hell realms. If you were good, there's the door to the heaven realms. So it's um, a, a judge, like, like they occur in many of these uh, cosmological um, mm. presentations, religious presentations. But perhaps more usefully, we can look at it as a presence. If we if we bear our death in mind, Maranusati, sati, bear our death in mind, when you bear your death in mind, it's that moment when you, you realize, hey, that was unskillful. I don't want to live with that anymore. Oh, that was beautiful. I want, to, I want to develop that. So it could be, the Zord of Death can be the moment when you bring death into your mind as your reference point. Yeah, clearly as your reference point. And then you put that there and you look and you review and think that was yeah, that was a waste of time. That was going up the wrong track. Doesn't really matter, I forgive him. You start to clear and then you get down to this is the beautiful. This is the this is the true intention. This is the clarity of this. So then if you cultivate like that it's quite useful to have a death every day, um, and it helps to to um, you know cut through to the most important pieces that you will die with, and uh, and certainly the teachings are that um, if one dies with a heavy negative karmic burden unprocessed, then that will continue to affect a future birth. So here's another question. Let's say my name is Sue, not <laughs> <or> me personally. <laughs> and during the interview session, you, as you, asks, what are the conditions that make up Sue? Would you elaborate a bit further on this? Particularly how this exploration might be used as a tool for practice. So it's a little bit hypothetical here. I don't think I would ask that question, personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I was going to think, I'd like say, "What are the conditions now that are making up Sue?" Very because we, what are the conditions that make up Sue? As a general statement, will tend to bring a person into thinking. You know, like oh well, well, I suppose my body, my credit card, my house, my address, my father. Uh, so where's that well so what you know you get a theoretical overview of it and it stops there you recognize well yes this soonness has been made but here it is here i am here i am as a result of all those conditions so i don't think i'd ask that question um because it tends to the theoretical and one goes up into one's head generally asking these kinds of questions in contemplative terms the idea is to use use a question to go past the concept to something more immediately realizable not something you have to look at the external figures so i might say what are the conditions that are making you up now now so now you well, there's a sense of Bit uncertainty, I've been asked the question, I can't answer. Uncertainty, um, there's this agitation, that's that's where I seem to be gathering at this very moment. You know. And so, then with that, you see, well, the, the conditions that make me up are actually always changing. So it's like in the conditions because of my father, mother, bank account, car, address, name I am Sue, here I am, but no I'm not. I have no fixed substantial quality at all. Because now, if I look right now, it's changing. It may be the warmth of my body, it may be pain in my back, it may be the thought in my mind, it may be the very mood that strikes me when you ask that question, but it's all flowing and changing. So essentially we see that that reference point is not, doesn't give, take you to a thing but takes you to a space a focus on recognizing the ephemeral condition process that's happening now and maybe the only thing that's making it into a sou is a notion in the head, notion in the mind and a tendency to to grasp that and you, you know, to hold it to, to fixate upon it now, that kind of in- inquiry may be useful because uh, we often don't really recognize the grasp of that piece. It it, uh, it maintains a certain uh, presence, even though we can't really pin it down. I call myself Ajahn Sajitta, and if I really look into that, what's that mean? It might mean a feeling of responsibility at this particular moment. But if I don't ask that question, then that might stick around as a person, as something that I fundamentally am, day, night, you know, and you become a mythology. You know, you become a notion. You know, say the conditions arising, and there's certain mental inclinations that occur, are they skillful or unskillful, relevant, irrelevant, Okay. Then you you know you you stay with your process, and witness it, contemplate it, feel it, and don't get lost in it. When one is experiencing rapture, pity, can one enjoy this as long as possible? Or should one be more skillful and do what? Well, it's up to you. (laughs) Um... It's like piti is like a particular sankara, generally considered a quite positive sankara, conditioned force and energy and activity and activation of the of the mind and even on the of the body, a somatic sense, most buoyant and light, and it does encourage. Uh, well it, first of all, it, it tends to negate dullness, restlessness, lethargy it will, abate, it causes the hindrances to abate. And the more one in, enjoys it, then uh, <clears throat> becomes familiar with that and it helps to almost reset your sense of who you are. Because you, we, we attain a certain familiarity with our, our moods, become ourselves. Uh, you, you know, I, in my, my you know, eagerness or my nervousness or my awkwardness or my irritability, because it happens so much, becomes myself, who I experience myself as being. So just experiencing, you know, one's apparent self as being something rather different does help to um, dislodge that. But of course, pity itself is not not a permanent entity that you have, and if you... uh, you Grasp it beyond just just enjoying and reflecting on it. If you grasp it, then um, it can cause quite considerable delusions and even uh, imbalance. You get too high and uh, um, excited, so then it becomes a problem. So the theme with, with pity is to, to just to enjoy and see the limitations. And it's a, if you're wise enough, you begin to recognize, yeah, you know, well, this is this, so what, you know. You've had, had a good meal with it, you know, enough. And then the more skillful is to learn to move towards sukha, which is something like con- more contented and peaceful, more like a feeling than a sankhara. Sankaras activate. Sukha is just soothed feeling, quality of an even, pleasant feeling. And then that calms the mind, so it's it's less prone to delusion. How you do that is, first of all, recognizing the unsatisfactory nature of pity, its limitations, and not getting so interested in it. You get emotionally less interested in it, and less fixated by it, less excited by it you withdraw emotionally withdraw towards dispassion and you begin to contemplate maybe you know first of all the waves of it and then you turn your attention towards the you know the waveform particularly as it moves past peak into a slight decline before the next peak so you see the fading it, it swells it tends to come in in waves so the downside of the wave, you focus on that subsiding quality of it. And if that isn't adequate, then you come back to um, feeling the sensations in the body rather than the energies. Energy can be difficult if we don't handle it wisely. You come to physical sensations, physical structure. If that doesn't work, start thinking. And start then you suddenly be worried, worrying and agitated. and You f- won't have any pity left at all. <laughs> Radical. But think, you know, you know. She's just so. It, it, in in some circles, that's pity is considered quite problematic because it, it can be slightly addictive, and uh, the forest masters would often just ground people a lot into walking. Uh, reflecting on the parts of the body using a mantra just to get people out of this over over exuberant high state where if you just you know if you just fixate on it then you don't have any you don't develop your wisdom so here's another question head empties I think it's quoting me The head empties into the heart, or is carried by the heart. The heart empties into, carried by the body. The body empties into the ground. What does the ground empty into? What's it held by? Mm. I think this is a bit hypothetical. Um, mm. What does emptying mean? It means there's a shift of energy from quite a high conceptual state to a lower lower range where it's it's more a uh, different quality and emotional we might say, heart quality and then sh- down shift the energy again and you come to something like a, it's, it's a slower time, time frame slows down, you come into somatic processes you shift down, open wide and soft and which turn the time frame down even slower and you come down to something like a very level state or level quality of mind mm. now can you turn it down any further can you empty it? can you mm. well mm. depends what's meant by ground mm. if there's a if there's a object of some kind then that can be seen as conditioned through wisdom. Um, if there's any kind of object that that it can be seen as a conditioned phenomenon such as solidity, spaciousness, conditioned phenomenon, subtle maybe, and we see it as see it as that. So everything eventually empties into wisdom, into wisdom and awareness. Mm. So I think that's enough for today.